The Ability Co-op is one of the largest student activism groups in the country, promoting awareness and advocating for policy changes to make Trinity Campus an inclusive environment for students with disabilities. Despite only being established in the summer of 2020, we've already secured thousands in funding to support our projects, which include a short film we're producing, this very podcast you're listening to, a training program we'll be introducing across the country and potentially internationally, and so much more. We're always looking for people to help out wherever they can, whether it be graphic design, social media management, videography, writing, and so much more. So if you're interested in getting involved, reach out to us. You'll find links to all our socials in the show notes below, or you can find us by simply searching for the Ability Co-op. Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of the Trinity Ability Co-op podcast. I'm your host, Harry O'Brien. In this episode, I sat down with two candidates for welfare officer. Dylan is a third-year environmental science student from Colorado. Sierra is a final year law and politics student, also from America. Both candidates have a wealth of experience with the Students' Union, particularly the Welfare Committee. I asked them about why they're running, questioned them on their manifestos, and asked them why they're best suited to be your education officer. So sit back and enjoy. Dylan, Dylan, but you chose Biomed and now you're specialising in environmental science. Why did you go down that path? So I came into college at Trinity kind of knowing I wanted to go into environmental science. I think a lot of people who do biomedical sciences don't know which moderatorship they want to choose. Um, But I knew I wanted to study environmental science specifically, um, partially because Trinity has a great field course aspect of that program, which I sadly am not taking advantage of this year. But um, partially because I have a huge passion about climate action and climate justice and the environment. And so I really thought it's something I want to like spend my life working towards, uh, you know, a greener, more sustainable planet. And I felt like learning about environmental science was a good start- starting point to see where I might want to go from there. That passion you have for the environment and climate, climate action, where, when did that really, when did you kind of know you had that? It's something that probably developed um, over the course of my childhood. I'm fortunate enough to have grown up in the middle of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. So I definitely grew up in what people would consider wilderness. Um, And so my dad always took us camping. My dad definitely, like, uh, I was very fortunate that he took us on a lot of trips. And he definitely instilled in me and my brothers appreciation for nature. And um, I think just the idea, uh, I can't exactly pinpoint one instance in my life where this happened but I just I slowly learned more about climate change through my science courses in school felt like it's something that you know I think it's deeply upsetting what we're doing to the planet like how it could hurt humanity and how it could hurt all the um, organisms and diverse and beautiful ecosystems uh, in the world and it's just something that I felt like compelled to preserve. Did you know that you felt strongly about that this is kind of where you wanted to go your life when you were like 17 18 deciding where to go to college what to study? It was probably more 13, 14, actually, because I remember sitting down like, okay, I want to go into sciences. And I flirted with like physics and environmental science, like kind of figuring out how in-depth I wanted to go. But I think by the time I was 16 or 17, um, I definitely decided that environmental science was was the path for me. You are an ordinary committee member on the Welfare and Equality Committee. What made you get involved? So I actually was not very involved with the um, SU politics until this year. And uh, it was really just because of the pandemic, because of the pretty universal mental health crisis. I finally decided to uh, take use of a lot of college resources, get some help, which has been very useful for me getting through this year. And um, I wanted to get more involved uh, so that other people could also find these services so that like to 
essentially just do my part to um, help out because we're all struggling in many different ways. And I figured the SU was a good avenue for that. So you got involved with the SU, you said this year, so within the start of the yes. last semester. Yeah, so um, yeah, it started with me running for class rep and then um, I saw at council that there were positions for the welfare committee. And so I put myself forward for that and I was um, elected. And then after that, I just started working with Leah um, through the welfare committee. Uh, like I helped her out with mental health week and I asked her if there was any more ways I could get involved. And she directed me to the student advisory board, which is how I got to be in that position. And it just sort of, I naturally was in a position to like get deeper and deeper into the welfare services. And I had a great interest in how they functioned because I think like, you know, one of the big steps to getting help is like knowing what's available for you. And so I think uh, I decided if I was going to like encourage my friends to, you know, go to student counseling or grow to group therapy, like I should know what options are available, what the differences are, like what would be best for them, that sort of thing. I was researching all the manifestos for these interviews. Yours was the only, only one that made me laugh. You said in your manifesto, <laughs> so about you're talking about sexual health, you're like, ideally we'll all be having more sex next year. That was great. And I, I agree hundred percent, ideally. Um, you said you will publish and advertise material on contraceptives, safe sex, sexual practices and sexual communication. Can you talk about what that material is and what it'll include? Yeah, so that, I could, my uh, background in sexual education is from the States, uh, so Colorado specifically, and it's kind of lacking in some areas. And from talking to some of my Irish friends, it's quite similar here where, um, if you do have sexual education in secondary or primary school, it's very clinical. It's very talking about focusing on STDs. Like my impression from um, my impression from the sexual education I got was, if you have sex, you're going to get an STD, and that was it. Like they didn't really talk about like sexual communication or you know dating or consent or anything like that. And it's those sort of materials I want to put out because I think those should be easily accessible for students who are like, oh, well, how do I talk to someone about sex and just. Um, have these, and this is not something that I would like um, publish necessarily from my own experience. I would be consulting different um, credible sources when collecting it, this, uh, these sources of information. And so I think like sex toy maintenance is a good example. Like how do you clean the sex toy? How do you avoid like, you know, getting urinary tract infections? Like uh, how to broach different sexual subjects with someone? Because I think that communication is a really important aspect to, to sex. That's interesting. And that's something that's not on the others uh, manifestos. All this information, can students just look it up on the internet themselves? Yeah, and I think the, the goal of what I want to do with this material is I want to make it centralized and I want to make sure the sources are credible because especially when you're looking up sex, you can find a lot of information. And a lot of people, when they look up information on sex, they get it from Pornhub or they get it from other pornographic sites, which is, it's fine and dandy to watch porn. I'm not against that, but I definitely think in terms of sexual education, there are some sketchy sites out there. And so I think making it centralized, making it uh, verified by the SU and making it like, uh, will make it easier to advertise. So you're talking a webpage. Yeah, I think um, that's something that it would kind of depend on um, the sources, because I think what we do is probably collect the document, uh, the information into like centralized document that then could be put like TCD headspace could make Instagram posts about it. Sometimes some, time, some uh, websites we might just link to directly. So it kind of depends on the resources we deem as most appropriate or like, uh, or would be a best use for students. 
But um, yeah, I think it would be versatile in this presentation. You said also in your manifesto you'll be pushing for the passing of a sexual assault policy in line with the HSE national consent policy framework. What policy or policies are you talking about here? So right now the uh, Trinity sexual assault policy is covered under the dignity and respect policy. Uh, and we have a pretty comprehensive sexual harassment policy for reporting and support. It's all made, it's all relatively clear in once you know where to look for it in the um, dignity and respect policy. But when you get to the part about sexual assault, uh, it's one or two paragraphs, very brief. And it says um, something along the lines of this is a crime. It's not within the college's jur jurisdiction. We recommend you go to the Garda, which I think um, is insufficient. And the government has published uh, policies and frameworks that um, suggest uh, colleges take policies that go beyond this. So it's definitely something that the college can't address. And this has been an issue for the past few years. And I know I'm lucky enough that I'm coming in towards the sort of end of this fight because the consent intern, the pr uh, current and previous welfare officers, they've all been working behind the scenes to develop a policy, get it passed. And right now, like I say in my manifesto, the consent intern and some other individuals are working on either amending the dignity and respect policy or passing uh, an individual sexual assault policy. Um, the nuance, nuances of that are I'm not exactly privy to because a lot of it is done like college bureaucracy, but it's definitely, we have a new provost incoming. We're gonna have some shift in administration next year. And it's definitely something I don't want to get lost. Like it's something I want to pass next year if possible, or at least ensure continue, the work continues so it gets over the finish line. You said before you're very passionate about climate policy. Um, you've also demonstrated a bit of a passion about sexual health. Um, if you could only achieve one item on your manifesto, what would it be? Oh, I think probably the what do I do now documents, which um, might be a bit of a cop-out answer because that does involve a, a wide breadth of field. But um, the collection of documents would expand the current what do I do down document, which talks about how to disclose um, sexual assault or rape in college. Um, what steps you can take, what services are made available to you. And so I wanted to make those sort of comprehensive documents for, you know, addiction, mental health, accommodation. And I think by, it can be very unclear what services are available to students in college, third party, or with the SU. And so I think I was really inspired by the existing What Do I Do Now document because it shows all the steps that are available um, if you want to report something in college. It really is pulling, it was made a couple of years ago by the gender equality officer at the time, Lisa Grimes, and it really pulls a lot of weight where um, our current uh, sexual assault policy is lacking. It tells students, here's the support you can get from counseling. Here's, you know, Dublin Wraith crisis, the third party resources you can go to. Here's the best steps and practices for reporting to the Garda. Um, and it just recently got updated by the consent intern, uh, also Aoife Grimes. Um, to include uh, information about image-based sexual abuse as well. And so I think college policy can be quite slow um, in its recommendations and its framework, and it can also be quite difficult to understand. So I think by condensing the information, uh, we can both inform students of what is currently available, and we can point them in the right direction uh, for services that the college might not be offering at the moment or yet. You, you are running against Sierra and Cahill. Uh, what sets you apart from two of them and makes you the best candidate for welfare officer? So I think what really sets me apart is, as UT kind of pointed out in one of their articles the other day, is I'm kind of I'm kind of in an interesting position where I'm a more of a balance of some of their key aspects. Like 
um, Sierra has phenomenal uh, SU experience. I think she's very well versed in um, the SU and how the college functions. And Cahill is less uh, less so well versed in the SU, but he's understands understands what it's like to be a disengaged student, and that's something I really resonate with. Where he talks about um, you know working with societies to better expand engagement and access of welfare resources, and I really relate to that when uh, Cahill mentioned that in his Hustings um, speech because this time last year I wasn't really that engaged with the SU. Um, and so I still know what it's like to be a disengaged uh, student, like what resources would have reached out to me, um, where the SU is falling short in their outreach or where the welfare services might be falling short in their outreach. And so I think having that combination of both, uh, because, I, because I've thrown myself so heavily into the SU within the past um, six months, I've tried my best to learn as much as I can. I have that fusion of like still not being absorbed in the SU bubble to a point where I, might not be able to relate with disengaged students as much, but also still being able to like ha draw on a wide breadth of knowledge about how the SU and college function. Okay, uh, Julian, thanks for sitting down with us today. All right, Sierra, thanks a million for sitting down with us today. I suppose I'll ask you, why are you running? Why am I running? So I'm running because as a member of the SU for the past two years, I've seen how the union works and I've gotten a grasp on how um, how union policy develops and how um, students can best make changes. And through that experience, I've seen um, gaps and places where I would like to make an improvement. And I've started to do that this year as the gender equality officer but I believe if I was able to really put in all of my time and energy into um, improving the student experience, I think I could really make a difference. And what it, what it really comes down to is that I'm just, I'm, I'm very passionate about helping students and I wanna make, I, I, I want to make a change in other students' lives, just like the SU made a difference in my life. You wanna talk about that, how the SU made a difference in your life? So I came to Trinity um, without ever, without knowing anybody in the country of Ireland. Um, I came to Ireland because um, I wanted to study in the EU. Um, I've always, it's always been my dream to work in the EU, um, and, but I also wanted to study common law. So it was the perfect place to study. Uh, but I didn't know anybody here. And so starting college was, it was difficult. Um, I, my, my course is very small. So I was able to get to know my course really well. Um, and and we, we bonded pretty quickly, but there were other areas um, where I just felt like the college wasn't supporting me. Um, I had a lot of difficult times with uh, finances, um, especially with academic registry. Um, and as a student with a disability, I also felt left behind sometimes. Um, it wasn't until I became involved with, uh, well, I was an S2S mentor before, um, but it, it wasn't until um, I became an S2S mentor and I became involved in the student union that I realized there was something I could do to make other students um, 
feel more included and accepted um, and, and maybe help some students who had, who had felt the way I did in first year. Interesting. You mentioned you're a student with a disability. Do you want to talk yeah. about your experience of being a student with a disability on campus? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have, um, I have something called uh, Bichette syndrome, which is um, uh, quite rare. Um, it, it's it's uh, similar to lupus. I know more people know what lupus is, but basically it, it's an autoimmune disorder that um, makes my immune system attack itself. Um, and so I often will go days where I'm in bed in pain um, or just have absolutely no energy. When I was in first year, I didn't know exactly how to, um, I, well, I had never lived alone. And so I had never, I, I never really learned how to find a balance between taking care of my physical and mental health and also making sure I was keeping up with um, with my my daily um, responsibilities. Um, and so there were times where I was just, you know, I, I was in a lot of pain and um, I, I hadn't really disclosed the fact that I, I had a significant ongoing illness um, to a lot of people, just to my closest friends. And so I felt kind of ashamed. And, and when my friends would ask me, hey, why weren't you in this lecture? I didn't really know what to say. Um, and it wasn't until I um, was set up with the disability service um, and I had a meeting with Declan um, where I felt like I could, I could possibly get through it. I felt like I had a plan, I had a solution. I knew what to do if I was struggling. I would go uh, to the disability service and, and I had that support there. Um, I think for me, it was more of a, a, a mental barrier of, of kind of asking for help and, 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 um, and making sure that the, my friends and the people around me were aware that um, I did have an autoimmune disorder. But uh, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of an overview of my experience as a student with a disability. What you mentioned there about like uh, needing to accept that you like you need to go out and ask for help. And that's something that a lot of students with disability, something that I experienced as a student with disability, I've heard over and over again from people through my experience with the ability co op. So thanks for sharing that. That's, that's really important for people to know that like it's okay to need help. It's a sign of strength. How, how do you manage your disability now? Um, it's a combination of um, finding, I, I finally found the right balance with uh, my medication. Um, so I take a pain medication and I also take um, a, a, a medication that slows down my immune system. Um, but it also has a lot to do with my uh, mental health because I think a lot of the times it, it can kind of become a cycle where um, you're feeling isolated because of uh, a disability or, or anything really, you, you feel isolated and then it becomes, um, you start to feel anxiety or, or a sense of, of depression. And so for me, it was, it was 
difficult to break that cycle, but once I did, it became so much more manageable. So um, I started seeing a counselor, which I hadn't done in, in many years. Um, and I started uh, exercising every day. Um, I meditate frequently. Um, and so, and also I, I have be begun to disclose um, my, my disability to professors. And if I do need an extension, I ask for it. Um, and, and so it, it's been a combination of kind of grasping with how to manage my my pain and and managing my mental health and then also making sure that I'm I'm doing well uh, physically so that I can focus on my studies. Which is fair play because that, that's a lot of work by like having to you know most people me included like if I don't you correct me if I'm wrong but like if I don't meditate in a day or if, if I don't eat well and exercise in a day I'll kind of bounce back in a day or two and um seems like for you, you have to balance that, but you also have to balance your medication. And it seems like you, you're more vulnerable to like steep drop-offs. Would that be right or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, and it really is like, I, I've talked about the cycle um, uh, already, but it, it really is uh, mental and physical health go hand in hand. And so, um, you know, right now during campaigning, I'm, I'm extremely, busy and and stressed and so um finding time to uh get away from social media and just be um by myself or spend time with my roommates is um it's hard to do but it really is necessary you mentioned at the start of this interview that you wanted to be wealth officer because you saw gaps that could be fixed mm -hmm. i mean I mean, there's gaps in all systems that can be fixed. You know, like I see buses that kind of come lane. Buses are dirty, but I don't try and fix them, you know? So is there something deeper that makes you want to be welfare officer? Welfare officer, which is the position that like, in a way you're helping people at their, when they need it most, much more so than like the ENTS officer helps students or the education officer. What is it about the welfare officer that you really, like, I know I'm asking you the same question again. I suppose I, I didn't feel your first answer was very, I don't know. I think there's something more. I think there's something more. Yeah. Um, I says about just my, my own uh, personality or, or the way that I, I see the world. Um, I, so for example, um, the welfare, the current welfare officer and I have been working the past year to get a supply of little cups um, to students uh, uh, in Trinity. And, um, and that was something you know, I went, I went into the SU and I saw that there were free condoms, but no free tampons. And that was, I noticed it and I thought about it and, and it just kind of, um, I kept thinking about it. Finally, someone needs to, someone needs to do something like this. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see this changing. Um, in a fast paced way 
because everyone has their own priorities. I'm not, you know, I'm not putting any sabbatical officers down, but everyone has their own priorities and, and getting free tampons and pads was not uh, a priority for uh, the people I saw around me. And so um, there was something, you know, I, I had noticed something and, and I wanted to change it because I really think that in order for, in order for the SU to be successful, um, it has to accommodate and welcome every single student, um, no matter who they are. On your, on your manifesto, you say you want students who are vulnerable to COVID-19 to be able to access education without compromising their safety by, sh by not having to show up to class. This would involve streaming every lecture, every tutorial, and um, this would involve like, is that not a lot of infrastructure to be set up? But just so that students who will probably have been vaccinated, and if not, most of our classmates will be vaccinated by September, current government road plan, which they're meeting, is that every adult will be offered a vaccine by September. You take up your position in July. Do you believe that's something you can really implement as welfare officer by September? Well, I think, um... <laughs> something we've all learned is that um we need to be flexible um so i i am kind of planning for the worst case scenario where everyone vaccinated by september and so i i think my my manifesto is not set in stone it's there as a, a guide as you know, as time goes on and as it gets closer to September, things will change. Um, and and so I, I think it depends on what what the world looks like um, over the summer. But yes, I, I do think it's possible because um, it's happening right now. And I know the um, education officers who are running, they have um, talked about doing possibly like a blended learning kind of thing where not everybody goes into college every day. And so I think that there's space um, in the situation that we're in, there's space to um, create infrastructure that can uh, that can work for and protect students who are vulnerable to COVID-19. Through that there's education officers that support this. Um, so you would have their support should you be elected. I don't argue with you that it should be implemented but well, that option sh should be available in an ideal world. But lectures are streamed at the moment because they're not in lecture theaters and lectures are streaming them from their own laptops. Do, do you um, why, how, like, have you considered a plan? Have you made a plan from July to September to implement this infrastructure so that all lectures are streamed from every school? Um, but for some students, like you're talking at most, couple of dozen of students, all this infrastructure, is that not going to be a huge expense? Like, do you, do you re, how, how do you plan on getting this done in those three months? Yeah, so absolutely. It depends, again, like I said, on um, how the vaccination process is going. But I think um, my plan at the moment um, is to create um, a um, form or, or some kind of in, uh, 
a, a place online where students who um, have a disability or are vulnerable to COVID-19 um, can can come to me with their concern um, and and file their concern with me that they don't feel comfortable coming back to college and work from there. So I don't I, I wouldn't contact every single lecture in the college. I would start with the students who are feeling um, are, are feeling worried about coming back to college or who haven't been vaccinated um, or or have having um, second thoughts about returning to college and and maybe maybe not all all students with vulnerabilities will feel that way but do you want to make sure that those students who do have concerns have a place where they can come talk to me about it and i will try to figure something out with the lectures so yeah i guess my plan is to start with um and then going from there you also propose in your manifesto a fee freeze on international students considering international students are one of the largest sources of income for the college and the college is at the same time, as we speak, facing a severe funding crisis due to COVID. They've lost multiple streams of revenue. Other ones have been severely diminished. How do you plan on convincing Babas to implement this fee freeze? And how likely do you think it is that you'll achieve this? My plan, well, I, I think I'd, I, I'd just like to explain what, what my fee freeze entails. So my fee freeze does not mean that the college will fee will freeze non-EU international fees forever. My plan is that a student who starts their education at Trinity will have a continuous fee for their entire degree. Um, so for the past two years, um, each non-EU international undergraduate and each postgraduate um, international student, whether non-EU or EU, has had their fees increased by 3% each year for the past few years. And that's the part that, that really um, doesn't make any sense to me because we, we decide to go to Trinity based on a multitude of reasons, but one of them, we, we, we see the fees that we are going to pay and those are the fees we agree to. We don't necessarily agree to a 3% increase in our fees each year. And so my main goal is to create certainty for students because um, and th the college does make a lot of money from, uh, from non-EU international students, but I also think the college should respect those students and give them um, certainty uh, in the fees they will be paying. So that that's that's my that's my, um, where fee freeze idea comes from is that is just to keep all students paying the same fees through their degree. Um, as far as how likely I think and how I'll go about doing that, I will start with speaking to the newly elected sabbatical officers in the new post and. Um, Council has been talking a lot about international students feel really left out of conversations about these and so I will make sure that the sabbatical officers and the provost understand that international students are feeling left out of the conversation um, and um, you know, I, I can't promise that it will be it will be done but I will try my best and, and 
and I will do everything I can to make sure that non-e-nations non um, are guaranteed. You could only achieve one thing on your manifesto, Sierra. What would it be? That's a really difficult question. Um, if there was only one thing I could do, uh, it would be to create uh, office hours that are um, accessible and available to all students. Amount of casework um, that the welfare the, the current welfare officer is dealing with this year is much higher than it has been in previous years because students are going through uh, something that's unexpected and and um, we never thought would happen in our lifetimes. So there there's so much that goes into the job of welfare officer, but I think the most important or one of the most important parts is casework and making sure that students are heard and students are understood and they feel supported. So I would, um, I have proposed to continue Zoom office hours for students who are on Erasmus or for students who have physical disabilities because SU is still not accessible physically. Um, and I will also uh, create group office hours for students who want to come with friends who might feel intimidated um, coming to office hours on their own. And I will hold um, early morning or later in the day office hours for students who are off campus or who have lectures all day. So you're running against Dylan Krug. You were running against Carl, but he dropped out. What sets you apart from Dylan that makes you best candidate for students to vote for as welfare officer? Um, what makes me the best candidate is that um, I have a lot of experience uh, within the SU. Um, I was a class representative where I learned how um, council runs and I started voting in council and I also work um, with with people in my course uh, and was kind of liaising between them and the college. And then as gender equality officer, I've seen a lot of casework. Um, I have also, you know, worked on my, my passion project for uh, period poverty the past year. And I sit on the executive committee I, I union form. So I have the experience um, to be a good welfare officer, but I also have the passion. Um, I am very, very dedicated to making sure that student experiences are not only academically fulfilling, but emotionally and mentally uh, um, fulfilling as well. And, and I really, I know I've said this before, but I, I just want to make the SU as welcoming as possible. What is it about period poverty that makes it so close to your heart, considering that it would seem to be a pretty minor issue that probably only affects a handful of students in Trinity, very few. Um, there, there has been research within Ireland that has found that um, many women and people who menstruate in college have experienced period poverty at least once in their lives. And so I, it, it's a much bigger problem than um, then I think most people realize, um, and, and that, that it, it touches my heart so closely is because, um, I think, you know, it's, it's a necessary item. It's not 
something that, that people who menstruate um, just use for practicality or because um, it's more comfortable, you know, period product thing that we need. And so they shouldn't be, um, we, we shouldn't have to pay large amounts of money for them. Um, and especially as college students who are facing, you know, un uncertainty, maybe eventually um, buy tampons or pads in one of the two SU on campus or leave campus to get period products. Um, there, are there are vending devices in a lot of the bathrooms, but they don't work. Um, and for, for students who are transgender or gender non-binary, it makes it even more difficult um, to get period products safely um, and, and without fearing uh, for, for their safety or for, for, um, for their uh, financial well-being. Um, so it's very close to my heart and it is something that affects more people than I think most, most people realize. Yeah, I didn't realize it affected that many people. Okay, Sarah, thanks a million for sitting down with us today. Yeah, thank you. This has been uh, really insightful. I appreciate it. So there we have it, guys. That's the episode. Fair play, Chef, for listening. Those are the three candidates. Be sure to register before the 8th. It literally takes two seconds to fill out. You put in your student number, your name. It's on every single candidate's social media. So yeah, do that. Um, listen, about what I said at the start, we really do have so much going on at the Ability Co-op. We're growing so fast. And all these projects, like this podcast, I just mentioned it at a meeting. And everyone else was like, yeah, go on, go ahead. And then I applied for funding and I got it. And we got a couple hundred euro for funding. We're getting a studio next year. The short film, again, we, um, that was someone else proposed that idea. And we got a few grand for that. So we're doing that this summer. Um, so if you're interested in getting involved in any creative way, um, come in, get involved. And you can propose ideas and we'll probably support you. So yeah, and literally we need people with all skills, be it maths, numbers, you know, writing content, managing social media, building websites, literally anything you can think of, we need help. So do join if you're interested. You'll find links to all our socials in the show notes, or you can just look up the Ability Co-op. And yeah, hope you enjoyed. Listen, we have two more episodes on Education Officer and Welfare Officer, so give them a listen to. They're very good.